Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, our passage uh, again this morning. You know, for most of the history of God's people, He has used the image of a shepherd to describe the role of spiritual leadership. It's not a particularly glamorous title because it involved so many um, sort of unseemly or un- unpleasant tasks. It, it was dirty work. It tended to deal with stinky animals whose fur, or I should say wool, often became matted with all kinds of debris and and filth and dirt, which made them smelly to work with. It wasn't a particularly lucrative type of employment. It often meant a life of of uh, extended isolation, sometimes uh, unceasing duties, as you really never had to, a, a day to take off and and to get away. It also had sort of positive images that came along with it of of the implied role of a shepherd as a protector and a feeder, in many cases a helper or rescuer from certain kinds of dangers. The task was important in the life of the sheep, and it was fairly straightforward. In fact, it was so clear what you ought to do. In many cases, little boys were shepherds. It wasn't complicated in that sense. Fairly straightforward, you could take a teenager, a young boy, an adolescent boy, and put him over a sheep and tell him the two or three things to do, and if he was uh, somewhat faithful in doing them, then he could be successful at all of that. God, however, had to rebuke at times Israel's leaders, and when he did that, he'd use the image of a shepherd to talk about how they were failing in the very thing that they were entrusted to do. Israel suffered so often under the negligence and oppressive kinds of behavior of unfaithful shepherds. Jeremiah 23 is a well-known pronunciation of woes upon Israel's leadership, woe upon their shepherds, because as God says, they were destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. They were driving them away and not attending to them. Ezekiel 34 God tells his prophet, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed my sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed my sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they have been scattered because there is no shepherd, and they have become food for the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered. They wander all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep are scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. It was a picture of utter disregard and dereliction of duty when it came to these shepherds. They were so intent on their own enterprises, in fact, they are even pictured as dressing themselves with the wool of the sheep and fattening themselves with its meat. But when it came to the well-being of the sheep themselves, there was disregard, indifference, indifference to their weakness and their injury and 
lostness and confusion. Primary responsibility was a shepherd for a shepherd was to feed these sheep, but they were not feeding. To tend the sheep, they were not tending. To lead the sheep, they were not leading. To protect the sheep, they were not guarding. To search them out when they're lost. But they were content to let them just wander away. The results of all that were devastation for the flock of God. Scattered, malnourished, vulnerability to attack. By contrast, a faithful shepherd, a genuine shepherd, one who had real concern not only for his duty but for his sheep, a real affection even for his sheep, would have been concerned about all of these things. He takes a keen interest in the matters of his flock. He's aware and attentive to their needs. He pays attention to their health. He is uh, attentive to their need for nourishment, for protection, for security, for shelter if necessary against the storms of life. Now, you could go to a number of places of Scripture to demonstrate and validate that. First of all, in the life, or I should say, in the the role of our God over His people. But today, we want to focus our attention on a passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which demonstrates the qualities of this kind of genuine and faithful shepherd as well as any other. In fact, as we've been seeing, 1 Thessalonians, which a lot of people associate with eschatology because of really a few verses at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, it is more than that. It is a manual of pastoral ministry, a manual of shepherding, almost a journal into the heart of a true pastor. It is, as we have been said, one of the most I've uh, been saying one of the most personal and, and uh, poignant books that Paul ever penned. And we have found that as he is writing it, he is speaking with some of the deepest expressions of his own pastoral affections and struggles that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. God has given us this book not to teach us a few details about his second coming, though that is certainly there. He has given us this book in large part that you and I might have a better understanding of what this kind of a pastor looks like. He's, he's inspired Paul to write these chapters so that we can better see the distinctions between what we might call counterfeit pastors and the genuine article, the pattern and the character of genuine shepherds. It's a book where Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, peels back the layers, we might say, of his flesh and bone so that we can see his inner man. He reveals to us his heart, his burdens, his cares, his joys, his motivations. And we are spectators, if you will. While Paul, by and large, is almost ripped apart in front of us by certain controversies. Controversies that have erupted in the church at Thessalonica and have caused him to have to write this letter. He had planted the church, you remember, in the early 50s, um, probably around the year 50, and he was abruptly forced to leave them almost overnight after having spent just three or four months with them. 
He had evangelized, he had planted the church, he had discipled them, spending, as he says, night and day pouring his life into them. He was, he was intense in his efforts while he was with them. And understandably, during that season, he grew very close to them, though it was a short period of time. Because the work of the Lord in his heart and in their hearts, he had been bound together with them. But a group of Jews who became, we're told in the book of Acts, they became jealous of Paul's relationship and success in this ministry. They sowed seeds of discord through the rabble and the worthless men of the streets, and they falsely accused Paul of stirring up riots. All of it led the city leaders to a state of alarm, even to the point where they took a financial bond from the church there in Thessalonica as a guarantee that these kinds of riots wouldn't be stirred up again. And so Paul was almost compelled to have to leave because if there was any riot that would have been pinned on him, even illegitimately, it could have led to financial ruin for the entire church. And so he left town quickly, traveling on to other cities, but his accusers didn't end there. They followed him, they followed him to Berea, they continued to try to smear his name and apparently even kept up the efforts in Thessalonica after he left. And it really is against all of the backdrop of that controversy and all the backdrop of those accusations. It provides a context of much of what we read here in Thessalonica. As I said, we're spectators. As Paul is really having his heart ripped out and placed before us in all of its agony and in terms of its aspirations. All the deep pains as well as the hopes that he had for this group of people. And all of it reaches a crescendo beginning near the end of chapter 2 and verse 17 and running all the way down through chapter 3. This is where everything has been building up to this point. As he begins to detail very specifically a visit from his protege, Timothy, that brought about this whole letter to begin with. He says in verse 17, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because... We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and look to and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about 
you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. These verses tell us exactly what it was that so burdened, but also so blessed the Apostle Paul in his pastoral ministry. And you can hear the intensity of his feeling. In fact, it probably finds its focal point in verse 8 of chapter 3 when he says, Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This is really all we need, he says, in order to live. I mean, I don't need anything else. All I need to know is about your spiritual well-being. That's all it is, that you're not wavering, you're not being moved, you're not being shaken by the temptations that are coming your way. And built around that whole idea, if you will, is a series of of statements from the Apostle Paul about his emotions and about his motivations. He speaks about desires and joys, about being unable to bear certain things, about fears, about comforts, about thanksgivings, about earnestness. It's a a passage that is absolutely infused with emotion. And all of them add up to the total picture of a genuine shepherd. What the Lord has painted for us through the opening chapters of this letter. To get a better grasp of that total picture, we need to trace out, I think, really several factors that affect Paul's feelings as a pastor. Several factors that, or circumstances, we might even say, that drive his concern on behalf of the flock that's been entrusted to them. Some of them are more weighty than others. Some of them seemingly are things which Paul has considered for some time and some even more recently. They range from things which have happened in the past all the way to what will happen at the return of Christ. But every one of them seems to be something that Paul always had in his view whenever he was ministering to the flock of God here, every one of them is an avenue of insight into the heart of this shepherd. And so we might label them, I think, six factors that reveal the affections of a pastor, of this pastor. Six factors, six circumstances that reveal the expressions of Paul's affection as a pastor. And the first one we might just call this the source of his present struggles. The source of his present struggles. Because he begins there in verse 17 with a bit of this historical context. How he had been, he says, torn away from them. Literally, the word is orphaned, a word that we apply to children who have been, we might say, unnaturally. 
or abruptly deprived of their parents. But here Paul suggests that he has been unnaturally deprived of his relationship to them as spiritual children. As we said, because of the fabricated circumstances from his opponents who had gone around and maligned his name and caused people to turn against him and even run him out of town. Paul basically had been on the run now for several months. And as he's writing this letter, he in fact is all the way down in Corinth. He had spent several months in Berea and then once they found him there and chased him out of Berea, the people of Berea escorted him down to Athens where he spent some time there and then eventually landed in Corinth. But it has been perhaps anywhere from six to nine months since he's been on the road and he hasn't heard a word from the Thessalonians. He hasn't heard anything about them. And so you can imagine what is churning in his heart, what must be going on in this period of silence. I remember whenever I was in China, uh, Tara came to visit me on one of those trips, and I thought that this is a great opportunity to propose. You know, go to the Great Wall, talk about how our love will go on, you know, more than this. I missed that opportunity. We actually, um, you know, it was just in my apartment, but nevertheless, I popped the question to her, and thankfully, she said yes. We had a wonderful time together. I went and bought her a cheap little ring uh, for the time being and sent her on her way back to Kenya where she was serving as a missionary. And then I didn't hear from her for six months. Now you can imagine what's going through someone's mind when you feel like you have this special bond and relationship to the point where you might even ask them to marry you and then you put them on a plane and you don't hear a word for six months. We later found out that the government was confiscating her letters. She was writing to me every week, but I wasn't getting it. But I remember distinctly the prayers that I was lifting up during that period of time. The hope that was based on the memories of the bond that we had formed over the little bit of time we were able to spend together that was getting me through that dark period as I continued to write and send off letters to her saying, I think you're writing to me. I hope you're writing to me. Paul must have felt some of that. He had this incredible bond with this church that had been formed in such a crucible and yet had been formed so deeply and now he's ripped away from them traveling on the road, knowing that the Lord had done something amazing while he was together with them, but now having no word of encouragement from them, wondering, wondering just how they're doing. Do they still have the same affections for him? This is where Paul was. He understood that the circumstances under which he left meant trouble not only for him, but also for them. That, that the isolation that was forced upon him, no doubt would have been a reality in their life as there was pressures brought against them. 
by these same opponents. And yet not knowing how all of it was turning out for them, Paul constantly on the move, wondering how his beloved brothers were surviving in their newfound faith. It seized his heart. In fact, he he says down in verse 1 of chapter 3, it was like a like a welling up with him then that just almost burst forth at some point. He had to send Timothy to find out what had happened. But he tells them, even though he had been torn away from them in person, it wasn't torn away in heart. Because they were constantly on his mind. Their spiritual well-being, their struggles, their burdens, their spiritual growth, all of that was on his mind. That's the heart of a pastor. Even when he was not with them face to face, it shouldn't somehow give them the idea that somehow they were removed from his heart. Like he tells the Corinthians that that he has all the struggles that go on in his life, but above every one of those other struggles, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, is daily the burden that's on him for the churches. Paul had this burden for Thessalonica. He carried it with him. Like every pastor does, it goes with them in moments of levity and moments of heaviness. It is always there. And all of this probably is being written because Paul knows that these accusers have come and they have leveled yet another accusation against him, which is the fact that he just didn't care. That the reason that he left and the reason he hasn't come back is because he has no concern for them. That he's too busy with his other endeavors, that perhaps he felt like he had gotten everything he could get out of them, that he was just mercenary in his motives, and so now he's moved on with no further thought of them. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Having been torn away from them, he was deeply, deeply impacted. And so he says in verse 17, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. We don't know what these attempts look like. We don't have any record of his decision-making process in this little circuit from Berea to Athens to Corinth. We, we know that they had, his accusers had followed him there to Berea. We know that they had stirred up trouble for him there and caused him to flee a second time. We know they accompanied him, the Bereans that is, accompanied him down to, to Athens all the way down in the south. We know that he left Timothy and Silas behind in Berea for a period of time, but once he arrived in Athens, he called for them to join him there. But somewhere along the way, in what Luke tells us in Acts uh, Acts 17, somewhere along the way, Paul says, we made several attempts to come and see you, but we were hindered by Satan. That's all the detail we get. We don't know how many attempts there were. We don't know exactly what the hindrances were where Paul says it was the work of Satan. But we know that Paul had this genuine and sincere desire. And we also know that he had a robust view of the work of the enemy against the church. The reality that Satan 
was no fairy tale. He understood the devil not to be some impersonal force, but an active participant in activities and situations that surround the church. At times, Paul had attempted to do ministry in certain areas and in certain ways, and he was prevented by God. Acts 16 tells us he wanted to go in Bithynia at one point, and the Spirit of Jesus prevented him. So he had a very robust view of the providence of God in those situations. But he also understood at times that Satan was the direct cause of certain attempts to thwart and undermine the work of God. Not many people believe that anymore, it seems. They might acknowledge that the Bible speaks about a person named Satan, but they would be hard-pressed to ever imagine how he was actually at work or even to explain how he is at work. But Paul has the maturity and the discernment to recognize the work of satanic opposition, and he speaks about it often. He understood, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that when he preached the gospel and people didn't receive it, it was because they were being blinded by the God of this world who is Satan. Even when they questioned his motives for ministry and rejected him, he says in that chapter, it was because Satan is blinding the minds of these unbelieving. In Ephesians 6, he understood that there were certain schemes that were employed against, that are employed against believers every day that require us to equip ourselves with spiritual armor. Because he says that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. That's the perception sometimes. That's the way people commonly think. They look around them and they see all these competing things going on and their conclusion is, oh, I understand, this is a battle between different forces of flesh and blood. And Paul says, no, that's not what it is. We're not battling against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, he says. There's an enemy, he says, Satan, who fires flaming darts of deception to undermine your faith and cause you to stumble. Peter says he he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. In Luke 22, Jesus warned even Peter that Satan had requested to sift Peter like wheat and God granted him the request. 1 Timothy, Paul says that Satan is involved in the lives of spiritual leadership, puffing them up so that he might ensnare them in their own pride. John 8, Jesus says that one of the tactics of Satan is to propagate lies through the spiritual leaders of Israel who Jesus calls the children of Satan because they're doing Satan's bidding. In Acts 5, Satan was directly involved, filling the heart of Ananias and Sapphira with self-righteousness to the point where they claimed to make some big sacrificial gifts just so that they could grandstand. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 that he felt a kind of divine jealousy over the congregation. He says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion 
to Christ. Satan was as ever at work in the life of the church as he was in the garden. The way this manifested itself, particularly in Corinth, was in these leaders who he says at the end of 2 Corinthians 10 were boasting and commending themselves and building themselves up. It was all about them. Even while they were, he says a few verses later, disguising themselves as ministers of righteousness. Paul even declares that one of them, a pseudo-minister, had become a personal ambassador of Satan to torment him, harassing him with insults and persecutions and hardships and becoming a thorn in his side. So all around, Paul saw all kinds of ways in which Satan was active in trying to undermine the church and thwart the work of God. And whatever it was, Paul says that in this particular situation, he was trying to return and minister to the church, but it was the direct result of the direct work of Satan to hinder this work. Some people speculate that Paul's talking about the work of these Jewish opponents who were chasing Paul around and stirring up riots and falsely accusing him and creating turmoil. Satan often does his work through those kinds of lies. Some people think that Paul's talking about the political leaders in Thessalonica who had forced the church to give this financial bond. And as we know, Satan works many times through these political structures. Whatever it was, Paul wants them to know that during his time away, while he was traveling through all of these cities, he kept looking for more ways to minister to them. His desire was to minister to them. An avenue of input into their life. And yet he was blocked by the work of the evil one. Despite what they might have been told, despite whatever bill of goods might have been sold to them about the the ill intent of Paul's motives, he says that the real explanation lay in the work of this old enemy. But to understand Paul's absence from them, he he wants them to understand not only the negative impact of that, not just the negative impact of this satanic hindrance, but he also wants them to understand the positive impact that a visit would have had for him. I mean, you got to get the full picture, you got to understand both sides of that. And that takes us really to a second factor that impacted, you might say, the affections of this pastor for his flock. And we might call it the ultimate driver of his desire. You see the source of his present struggles, but he also mentions this driver of where his real desires were. And all of this sort of frames up around the return of Christ because he says in verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He wants them to understand this. He wants them to to deeply grasp what he's saying here. That as a pastor, that his truest and greatest joy was this. His greatest glory even was this. Their spiritual growth and well-being. 
He calls them his hope, which is a word that we use sometimes in English to talk about something that that we're not certain about. But when you come to Greek, it really is a word that conveys certainty, a confidence. And so when we read this, Paul is talking about sort of a confident expectation that he finds in them at the return of Christ. He understood the promises of Christ. He understood that Christ surely would return. And when he returns, he would have with him, or we might say he will reward with him those who have been faithful in what they have been entrusted with. And Paul's saying that among all the things that he has done in his labors, one of the sources of confidence for him were were these Thessalonian believers. Being with them, seeing the fruit of their lives, gave him some confident assurance that he had done something for the Lord. And so it would have been a constant source of joy to be around them, which is the second thing he says here. He says, you're, you're, you're our hope, you're a source of joy. We might say, not only now, but eschatologically, you will be as well. Paul not only took joy in what these brothers and sisters meant to him at the moment, but he found a sense of joy and anticipation of what it will mean at the return of Christ. He was was stimulated in both ways by them. Because as he says thirdly, they were a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. This word crown, referring to sort of the laurel, wreath that was placed on the head of a a victor, a winner, someone who's competed in a prize, uh, in a game, I should say, maybe the Olympics or something like that. And Paul is anticipating this moment of celebration at the return of Christ, an anticipation of reward for his labors. And one of the key prizes, one of the key honors will be their presence with him. That's why in verse 20, he calls them his glory and joy. You have to understand what Paul's saying here, because I think that this is almost completely lost in the early church, I mean, in the modern church. I hear very little of this kind of talk or language, but you see it frequently in the book of In the New Testament books. Paul is saying. That a great part of the bliss of heaven for him. Will be the presence of those. That he has been used by the Lord to reach. And this will not be insignificant. It will not be an unnoticed part of your heavenly experience. You will either be surrounded by the riches of those in whose life you have been used by God, or you'll stand before Christ impoverished and empty-handed. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3, you will either have wood, hay, and stubble that sort of burn up, or you will have gold and riches and treasure. And it will be a significant part of your heavenly experience. There will obviously be those that you lead to Christ because you took the time out of your schedule 
and you took the burden of rejection upon yourself and shared the gospel with them. You may not be the one who sees them on the spot repent, but you were one of the voices that the Lord used to penetrate into their heart with the truth of the gospel. I remember meeting the man who shared the gospel with me some years, four years after he shared the gospel with me and was able to, with delight to tell him how I came to know Christ because he shared the gospel with me. I didn't repent on the spot, but the Lord used that man to bring me to Christ. You might be surrounded in heaven by the children that you helped raise faithfully under the nurture and admonition of the Lord or the little ones that you taught in Sunday school or Bible studies or you'll be surrounded by those who have been reached by the efforts of missionaries that you prayed for and you supported sacrificially or you'll see the lives of people who you may not have ever met but you sacrificially provided to support some ministry in efforts to reach them. You remember how Jesus even talked about this in Luke 16 when he says, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous wealth so that they might receive you into eternal homes. So you have all this indication of these these rewards, the ones that you prayed for, the ones that you asked the Lord to work in their lives, the ones that you invested in. And Paul had a very, very strong sense of what all of this would mean in his life at the return of Christ. And he wants them to understand it would have been an immense source of joy for Paul because his time in Thessalonica had been so fruitful, he had every reason to want to return to them because the work among them would have multiplied his reward and would have compounded his joy both now and at the return of Christ. So he's basically saying, why in the world would I have avoided such a thing? Seeing the work that God had done in your life, why in the world would I not have wanted to come to you? Knowing that God is at work among you, you are my crown, you are my joy, you are my hope. It's sad, so few people have any kind of confidence that when Christ returns, they'll see any fruit. They sort of glibly go through their Christian life consumed with their own pursuits, not heavenly minded, not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But for Paul, his life was full of joy, full of the richness of anticipation because he had invested himself, because he had sacrificially given himself Because he had prayed so diligently over these believers. And he saw already the fruits in their life. And he couldn't wait for the return of Christ. To see the riches of what it would mean. There are times and places in ministry. Where it might be difficult and the fruits would be sparing. But Paul is saying, look, you're one of those groups and you're one of those places that fills me with hope and confidence because of the fruitfulness in your life. And so you are a source of joy and you are a source of glory. This is what drove him. There was no discussion here about about personal Growth in the scope and size of his ministry, that's not what drove Paul. 
There's no discussion here about some sort of notoriety in this life or some sort of luxury or gain or any of those things. He was focused on those blessings and on those joys that awaited him at the return of Christ. And it generated even a joy in this life. That's why so many Christians go through life so joyless. They don't have any of this anticipation. They don't have any of this hope. They don't have any of this expectation. They don't have any of this fruit. Their time, their money, their resources are all consumed on themselves. Their words, their conversations are not redeemed for the gospel. Their whole life is oriented towards the next day in this life, not the day of Christ's return. But for Paul, he was driven by these desires. He was driven by these expectations. By the expectation of what a faithful ministry would look like at the return of Christ. Well, those two give us a good start and much to meditate on. We'll come back next week and finish up the list of these factors that impacted the affections of this godly pastor. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to have these reminders. It is a moving section for us, and I pray one which has its fruit in our lives. May you mold us after the fashion of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the one who cares for us so faithfully and those that you've entrusted to our care so that we might teach them, reach them, provide for them, whatever it might be, pray for them. May you move in our hearts to do that faithfully, Lord. And we will find our joy in your work through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.